0: Come and show me the magic. and I take you out to the picture? Well, I hope you'll come and see me in the movie
1: What a scene of your Hollywood song! Hello and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans, and each week we discuss a different movie about, starring, or inspired by the Beatles. This week, we're doing things a little bit differently, because we're going to discuss Mad Men episode Lady Lazarus, which secured the rights to use the Beatles song Tomorrow Never Knows at great expense at the time, uh, when it was notoriously difficult to get the rights to use any Beatles music in anything, something that is actually addressed in the episode itself. We'll be talking about the importance of the song, how it slots into the themes and overall rolling narrative of Don Draper's life, as well as how the Beatles' career tracks alongside the changing culture and attitudes that are presented throughout the show. Lady Lazarus is the eighth episode in the fifth season of Mad Men. It was written by show creator Matthew Weiner. It first aired in May 2012, and there's a lot to discuss, uh, not least of which is the fact that Mr Belding from Saved by the Bell pops up in a bit part in one scene. (laughs) That was a <laughs> that was a shock, wasn't it? <laughs> Maybe Ed, I could ask you first of all to just recap for uh, everyone listening what actually happens in the episode before we start discussing it.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so season five of Mad Men is sort of when the characters are in a, are in a bit of a, a state of flux. It's fair to say, uh, sort of Roger Sterling says to Don Draper early. On in the season when are things going to get back to normal and that seems like a bit of a theme that's running through the, the whole thing so basically don draper the main character is at a stage in his life where he has uh remarried he's got out of what was previously an unhappy marriage where he was kind of living in the suburbs with his wife and kids he's now remarried to a much younger wife megan uh who is now a copywriter at the ad agency where he's the head of creative and Megan, in this episode, decides that she doesn't want to be a copywriter. Um, she wants to go off and be an actor instead. This is sort of something that Don kind of struggles to get his head around a bit. And there seems to be something going on with a sort of cultural and generational gap between them. At the same time, Pete Campbell, the one of the heads of accounts... He embarks on an affair with the wife of a friend of his who he gets the regular commuter train with. And he is becoming a bit dissatisfied at being out in the suburbs where all the action is going on in Manhattan.
1: That's right. I I don't mind admitting uh, that I am a newcomer to Mad Men because I mean, I've watched the entire show now. In order for for me to have the right context to discuss this episode, that's the length to which I go to in preparation for an episode. So I've watched the entire series to date in order to have the right context to be able to discuss one particular episode. But one of the reasons why I think I've struggled with it in the past is because it's fair to say that the the episodes don't necessarily have a specific point that's driving the plot yeah. that then reaches a definite conclusion. Yeah, you know, they're all sort of parts and segments that make up. The rolling uh, story of Don Draper's life and his evolution as a as a character, and you could be forgiven for watching an episode and feeling, oh, nothing's really much has happened. But that's kind of the point. The point is is for, for the show, I think, to present a realistic view of the life of what is actually a very complex man.
2: Yeah. So I think it's um. So it's true that it's it's sort of realistic, I suppose in terms of one of the things that really struck me about Mad Men when I first watched it. So, you know, in in contrast, I've seen Mad Men all the way through probably four times or something like that. (laughs) off. And uh, it's one of my, I'll ignore that. Um, It's uh, it's one of my, I'm going to say probably my favourite TV show of all time. Uh, One of the things that really struck me was that but when I first started watching it, I thought, oh, great, a TV show about the 60s. I know all about the 60s because I like the Beatles. Um, <laughs> and it really made me realise, like, oh, I knew nothing about the 60s because my entire image of the 60s was people at Woodstock standing in a field getting stoned, <laughs> Yeah. Right? And so I didn't think at all about the fact that for the vast majority of people, they were just working in offices throughout the 60s. And there was all this sort of cultural... Societal upheaval, even civil unrest, going on, but they weren't. Not everyone was right in the middle of it. You know, you talk to like most of our parents' generation. My uh, my dad went to San Francisco in nineteen sixty seven. You know, and 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 brought and did not drop acid. (laughs) Uh, Was broadly aware that it was a sort of vaguely culturally significant place to be, but he just fancied a holiday. Like he and his friend went after they'd finished university. And he he was sort of wearing a sports jacket and tie and smoking a pipe, you
1: know. But I guess I I feel that's what I mean by when I'm saying the show is a realistic representation of that because the show isn't about these events. Mm. These are things that are happening around the characters as they lead their normal lives. And it's quite... It it feels like it's quite naturalistic the way that those things happen together. You You know, watching a recent episode where everyone is watching the... Uh, moon landing yeah really like a really good example of this is the thing that everyone is talking about in the episode because this is the big thing that is happening in the news at that time everyone sits and watches that as it happens but the the episode itself isn't about that these are there are other things and other developments that happen to the characters in that 50 minutes yeah whatever and i think that's that's rare for a tv show because it's normally uh, each episode has a particular subject or point or plot mm. and and this show doesn't it feels like it is one open-ended tapestry <laughs> for <if I> want of <laughs> a better <laughs> yeah, 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 analogy yeah. and and you're you're you are just looking you are just watching these characters sort of interact with each other as they go through their own personal and professional changes
2: yeah and and you're sort of seeing various things happen in microcosm i mean so the yeah. character of peggy Olson. You're you're sort of watching the way that w- women sort of develop through the workplace, develop agency, and in particular, creative agency, of their own, and and are able to kind of achieve a status through a, a sort of the sort of meritocracy of the workplace, that kind of thing. It, despite sort of being the victims of, of sexism, you also see in this season the first African American character called Dawn Chambers, who is Don's secretary, who is hired as the first black employee. Of uh, the agency, it's simply because of a prank they played on another agency gone wrong, and they kind of like were put in a position where they had to hire a black employee, you know. And she, of course, is a perfectly competent employee, but not like that's not why they were hiring her in the first no, no. place, you know. So, little thing, but you know, at the same time, I mean, that situation comes about because. Uh, because African-Americans are sort of protesting in the street outside this other agency about a sort of unequal hiring policy. So these things like the civil rights movement is kind of going on. And there is a later episode where, again, one of those things that goes on on the TV uh, is like the shooting of Martin Luther King. All all of this stuff is kind of going on around them. It's only in sort of little fragments that it bleeds through into the office and into these characters' lives, you know.
1: And so, can I ask you a question? then? what do you because this is a, a question that I find myself wondering as I'm watching the show. Uh, in your mind, how do you think the show is written? So, how do how does each episode differentiate from each other in a way that uh, makes sense for them to be split out the way that they are?
2: Yeah, so I suppose it's kind of similar to. I mean, *The Sopranos* very much set a template for *Mad Men*. Matthew Weiner, sort of um, key creator and showrunner of *Mad Men*, was a writer on *The Sopranos* as well, which is kind of where he cut his teeth, as it were. In that there, there is meaning going on. You're going to have to work a bit to find it, and also there's nothing kind of so obvious as definite meaning per episode. You're kind of, like reminded me of um, as we've talked about recently. I've, I've j- j- just read the. Uh, the New York Trilogy by Paul Auster, which I know is one of your favourite books. Yep. We've talked about that a, a bit recently. And there's a there's a review on the back of the book by whichever publication it is, which says uh, Auster doesn't deal in anything uh, quite so obvious as meaning. He merely uh, creates stories like pebbles and allows them to rub together, and which is a really nice way of uh, articulating something I, I couldn't, you know. And, and I think that, Mad Men is quite similar in that regard. Sopranos is quite similar in that regard. In that, uh, so what what you're being shown on screen is never that straightforward. There is always meaning you can read into it, and it's not even just uh, oh, you can attribute uh, your own meaning to it. There are things going on. It's just that there's probably three or four things going on at the same time, and and you can and you can watch episodes more than once and get something slightly different out of them each time. Yeah, that,
1: that's very true. I I think that's exactly it. I think my view on it is having watched the show and and finally after a few sort of full starts trying to watch the show and not really gelling with it uh i think i i really sort of clicked with it once i realized that the the events that happen to each character in an episode will seem like just that day's challenge or that day's drama for them but actually i think within each episode if you look hard enough you can find some connective tissue that connects them Mm. and i think that um each plot and subplot in each episode could be presented differently but they are constructed in a way where characters react to what's happening to them that has thematic ties across each of the different plot strands and i think that's that's what's really interesting i think overall we know don draper's a as a you know, obviously is a very complex character, but overall I think the main theme for his character throughout the whole show is that he seems to be having an existential crisis more often than not, and it's how that presents. So I think you know, right that right back to the start of we know we learned very early on in the show that he has taken on someone else's name and someone else's identity. Yeah. It's a really basic take on this idea of him not knowing his own place yeah and feeling like an imposter etc but there's so much depth and nuance in that feeling that then gets explored throughout the whole show yeah. uh, he constantly feels ill at ease constantly seems to question uh, his place and his role uh, at work in his personal life um seems to be always searching for some kind of meaning that is just out of grasp for him and uh, and from that sort of root theme there are offshoots of other sort of like crises and related issues that he experiences and other characters around him experiences as well
2: yeah and and like all the while while appearing outwardly for all the world to be the kind of person who is completely comfortable with his place in the world hyper confident and just sort of dominates every room he walks into which wow. is,
1: which is a really good point, by the way, for me to interject and just talk about the title sequence, because I think that, mm. um, uh, it took me a while to understand what's happening in that. The title sequence, which, which obviously very famously, the, the animated kind of like a Saul Bass style jazz era animation yeah. of a man falling from a skyscraper. And then you just see him in free fall, literal freefall, And then the last shot of that title sequence is over the shoulder and your first instinct would be to imagine that that is him approaching the floor. But actually, as the camera pulls back, you see that he is at ease on a sofa smoking a cigarette. Yeah. And I think the the whole point of that total sequence is, is that he is a man who inwardly feels like he is in free fall and that his life is in constant chaos. But outwardly, he is always assured and confident and uh, apparently taking things in his stride.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think so this this one of the things about Mad Men is that that chaos that's going on within Don and within other characters, too, is sort of being mirrored in the fact that it's set in the 60s, which is, is a time of great where everything seems to be in a state of flux. Because what, what's happening in season five in particular, it seems, is that the characters are really starting to feel the paranoia of the 60s so like i said the the counterculture is mainly something that has sort of gone on around them and something that they don't really interact with that much other than in in flashes but i think there's a, there's a feeling that uh, the the walls are closing in on them a little bit and so there's a few events this so this um this season is set in 1966 and so when we start the season it's in i think maybe the spring 1966 the episode we're talking about is in the summer. It's just after a *Revolver* has come out in the U.S., uh, so it's in August 1966, I think. But we're it, we're hearing about things that happened in real life in the news. So there are there there, there are riots going on in various cities. Uh, Chicago being one of them. There are sort of riots going on in the, in the in the South as well, in the Deep South. Uh, on 13th of July, there are the Richard Speck murders in Chicago where he broke into a nurse's dormitory and murdered i think eight nurses um so there's an episode where the the uh, lots of the characters have a sort of prurient interest in that and sort of seeing crime scene photos and also and don draper's young daughter sally is kind of uh, curious but then scared by it you know and everyone is kind of a, a bit on edge at the, like, the you know, is this, is this gonna, is this gonna happen to me? Or not, not that they're framing it in, in, in quite that way. But, um, there's, um, like an episode later when Pete Campbell meets a, a teenage girl on his driver's education course and she's saying, Oh, I'm not sure my parents are gonna let me go to college because there's just been the, um, uh, University of Texas sniper murders, which was on the first of August, 1966. Uh, and she kind of expresses, Uh, how everything I think she says everything seems so random at the moment or something like that Mm -hmm.
1: I'm not getting married until after college if my parents still let me go what? didn't you hear about the sniper at the University of Texas today?
0: aren't you going to Ohio State?
1: it doesn't matter just two weeks after those nurses in Chicago they don't
0: want me out there by myself don't let them scare you I don't know. Things seem so random all of a sudden, and time feels like it's speeding up. It does,
2: doesn't it? And like I say, everyone is seems to be kind of thinking, when are things going to go back to normal? You know, and we don't see it, but this is also the time that for the Beatles that. This is around the time the bigger than Jesus stuff is happening, sure. You know, so Dateline magazine has republished John's bigger than Jesus comments on the 29th of July, them having been published earlier in the year, I think in March, uh, in the evening standard, the original Maureen Cleave interview. So, they re- republished 29th of July, and that's what kind of kicks off uh, all the chaos for the Beatles. The Beatles. Fly to the u s for their tour on the eleventh of August, which is where John does his uh his Chicago apology mm-hmm. <laughs> You know yeah. I, I'm not saying In quotation we're better, marks right? so, yeah yeah all, all that kind of stuff
1: saying that we're better or greater or comparing us with Jesus Christ as a person or God as a thing or whatever it is, you know I would just said what I said and it was wrong or was taken wrong, and now it's all this.
2: So basically, there seems to be a, a revolution going on outside, but the characters aren't really uh, engaging with it. But I think they're all kind of starting to feel like something's coming over the hill. I don't know what it is. Mm. but And so I think there's also a sense that this, this sort of permissiveness of the 60s, which they would all think of. You do get a few characters in this talking about someone says at one point, a British character who says, oh, I think... You know, London's no better than New York at the moment. All the, all, all the boys look like girls and things like that. You know, and so and so there are a few of them who are kind of like quite sniffy about people with long hair and stuff like that. But I think for them, there's also the sense that this is a much more permissive society and people are being allowed to sort of run around doing whatever they want and sort of taking drugs in the street, like the logical conclusion of that is is a sniper goes to the University of Texas and shoots people, you know. Yeah,
1: it's anarchy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're they're on the cusp of change. Because I think when we first meet Don in the first series of Mad Men, the interest in that first series when it would have first aired is the contrast between that period and present day. Yeah. Uh, You're seeing what is quite a stuffy, Attitude from from him as a sort of you know high powered suit working at a, an advertising agency, yeah. and I guess yeah over time that becomes more outdated within the show's timeline. So not just for us as a viewer, but actually also like as as, as they interact with other sort of secondary characters who are much more in tune with the zeitgeist, they become outmoded themselves. Among, there's a scene in one of the earlier seasons and I really enjoyed uh, watching John Hamm's delivery in particular because obviously John Hamm is absolutely fantastic in this show. Yeah. But there was one where he visits a lover of his who is staying at this sort of like bohemian style apartment yeah, with other yeah. guys and they're all smoking drugs yeah. and stuff. And then the police raid the apartment block and it happens at a time when he's basically had enough. He he doesn't want to interact with them anymore they are to, for him they are just a bunch of hippies yeah. right so he wants to leave and one of the guys says to him you can't leave there are police outside and he just turns around and says i can <laughs> right, which is brilliant because and he does and he just walks out and the, the police officer uh, outside just sort of like doffs his helmet to him and just says like right. you know it's right, a it's not a helmet is it because it's us but you know what i mean <laughs> but he just does leave and like, there's no questions asked because he's in a sort of social a different social stratosphere to everyone else and there is that burgeoning gap that appears between don and the younger generation and you know the 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 sort of more working class citizens
2: yeah and the the interesting thing is like where where don interacts with with the counterculture so i mean don is like the head of creative at a madison avenue Mm. advertising agency he is a very creative guy and he is known for being creative. Like, you know, you kind of suspect people around him think he's a genius. He's, he's revered on Madison Avenue for being the guy with the best ideas. So he's been creative in a sort of corporate environment, you know? So, I mean, the episode you're talking about is, I forget whether it's the same one, but his interaction with her finishes in an episode called Babylon, mm-hmm. where they go to a sort of beatniks club where there's like beat poets. That's right. And yeah. everyone clicks fingers rather than, <laughs> yeah. rather than applauds at the end of each poem. And, um, he sits there in a sharp suit, smoking cigarettes, like with the attitude of um, like, "and what you know, take, yeah. take me or leave me," which is great. And then the guy plays uh, like "Babylon," the traditional folk song, same one that Don McLean covers on the American Pie album. And Don, uh, and he watches that and appears to be moved by it in some way. Yeah. So like Don is kind of interacting with the counterculture, but he's sort of harvesting the creative uh, elements of the counterculture. In, and sort of plucks ideas from it and uses that to sell things to people you know
1: I, 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 I agree with you I think that's that's the interesting thing about his character isn't it and I think this is where we can um start bringing in significance to the the song to this particular episode because hmm. I think that Don is a, a creative, but I think the reason why he is so good at his job is because he can read people very well and you can read a situation very well so time and time again you'll see an episode someone pitch him an idea and he'll immediately shoot it down because it's like you know you can't associate a plane with an emergency or you can't you know and he's like he he's immediately puts himself in a audience's perspective and he knows how to think in that way so when we when we talk about him being a creative and interacting with the counterculture he's removed from it because what makes him a creative is his ability to uh, be perceptive in the right way that makes those ideas work for the brand, and yeah. I, I feel like he the, the reason why he is so successful at uh, uh, creating great advertising ideas is because he approaches each task as a puzzle that needs to be solved, uh, and he's he'll he'll, he'll immediately. Uh, approach these things of what is the bottom line thing that we are trying to do and what is the thing that people will connect most with in order to be able to do that normally on an emotional level which is something that he comes up against uh, as a bit of an issue because at at that time most people he's talking to aren't interested in emotion led advertising Mm. but that's how he knows he can connect with an audience which is still a thing that is a, a, a debate or a bit of a tug of war in advertising now so the point is that he's kind of removed from that counterculture. He's not automatically in tune with that counterculture just because he's a creative. It's almost in spite of it.
2: Yeah, yeah. And and that's kind of the tension that seems to be happening in, in this episode, you know.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness.
2: in documenting the 1960s uh, it's also talking about uh, through the medium of, of advertising uh the first point when ideas had currency if you like they had kind of commercial currency you could have a job where your job was to have ideas you know and these and these will have been men who who, who disappointed their fathers mm-hmm. a lot because you know their fathers were men who sort of made things they built things they built you know Bridges and they, mm. you know, and 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 they they, they did jobs with their hands. They, they made things, you know, and now you know all of a sudden these guys can be sort of masters of the universe on Madison Avenue, uh, just by having ideas and going to lunches and and being charming and selling the idea to people, you know. And so th- this is one of the things that um, can make uh, Don Draper seem uh, quite a hollow character, you know, because I mean, but by the way, you know, it's also about where. Uh, people can kind of create an identity through having ideas, you know, and through creativity as well. And I feel so, like
1: in this day and age, they'd be podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah.
2: Just sitting
1: here disappointing our fathers. <laughs> 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 By dissecting the an episode. But
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah but um, and so, you know, the, the 60s being this time when ideas were suddenly enough in and of themselves. We think of that as a very creative time, so especially through through the Beatles and through, as we talked about as well, things like the cinema of the of the nineteen sixties. Uh, ideas are coming to the forefront much more. But the interesting thing about what's happening in this episode and in nineteen sixty six in Mad Men, is that um, countercultural ideas, music being a big part of it, are starting to come into the advertising. They're realizing that you know things like the Beatles are popular. We need to mirror them in some way in our advertising, and this is the point at which Don, who's previously being able to create an identity um through this, because I mean, by the way, as an aside, you know, bear in mind that Don Draper didn't exist before his job; he literally created the, this character, mm. and so he's he's entirely hollow. You know, he he can have um he's created his his whole identity through having ideas, but all of a sudden. Uh, there are these new countercultural ideas coming through, and he doesn't quite understand them. And so, all he's really doing is just creating a facsimile of them and putting them in to the adverts. He doesn't understand them because he doesn't really know how to feel, if you know what I mean. Yeah,
1: yeah, that which is, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. So, let, let's first of all let's um, talk through a little bit about how the the Beatles in particular get introduced in this episode. Yeah. So, it happens through a a pitch to a client where they are talking through an advert that would essentially replicate the famous scene in A Hard Day's Night yeah. which they reference and they say uh, it would be a, a, a person running through the streets with lots of screaming fans running after him I think it's to sell Chevalier Blanc I think they say yeah. It is yeah and the tagline is more trouble than it's worth uh, but the client specifically wants in order to sell this idea a piece of Beatles music yeah so we've been looking for a piece of music it really has to have that sound that the movie has. Well, that sound is the Beatles, who you said are impossible to get.
2: No, don't worry. There's a million bands that sound like that. Or we'll make our own.
1: All we want is the chaos and the fun.
0: That sort of um, adolescent joy. We know what the Beatles sound like. We'll do our best.
1: And then what What Don and his creative team are then tasked with is finding appropriate music to soundtrack this Beatles-themed or Beatles-parody advert Um, and they throw a few sort of band names around like Herman's Hermits is one Zombies Zombies is another one Mersey Beats is another one Uh, at one point they listen to a piece of music that is supposed to be Beatlesque, and Don doesn't realise it's not the Beatles (laughs) Um, even though it's in two hours it sounds nothing obviously like them yeah
0: Are you kidding me? Why am I listening to this? I know we can't get the Beatles. It's not the Beatles. This song's like 30 years old, but it's happy and it's fun. And Don thought it
1: was the Beatles. They like it. Turn it off. It's stabbing me in the fucking heart. Having told the client we know what the Beatles sound like, as it turns out, he doesn't at all because he hears this piece of music and he says, you know, we can't use the Beatles music. Because this is the real issue. They can't actually get the rights to use, um, actual real Beatles songs. And then ultimately what happens at the end of the, uh, episode towards the end of the episode is Megan hands him a copy of the Revolver album. She specifically says, start with this track. And it just happens to be the last track on the album. That's yeah. like, that's the advice of a psychopath straight away, isn't it? <laughs> start <laughs> at the end. Yeah. Um, but also in some ways quite fitting. Uh, and then so he, he, he puts on, the song tomorrow never knows and while the song plays there's a bit of a montage that wraps up everything else that's happening in the episode Uh, and then he turns it off like mid-song doesn't he i I think the impression is that he that we're supposed to think think is that he doesn't really have a taste for it because it's too progressive yeah uh, for him because obviously the song uh, as it sounds is is a massive departure from the pop sensibilities of early Beatles music.
2: Yeah, she doesn't even ease it. She could have she could have given him Yellow Submarine to start with, you know. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, at least let him warm up to it, you know. Uh yeah, so what happens is he this is after uh, Megan has now left the agency and she's gone off to she's going off to an acting class that night and the night before he came home from work and she was there cooking for him and I think he kind of thought like, oh yeah, maybe I could I could get used to this, you know, I have hmm. my dinner on the table when I get home. But this, he's kind of coming home tonight expecting the same experience. And she says, oh, I'm glad I caught you. You know, I'm just on my way out to my acting class. I didn't think I was going to get to see you. And yeah, she gives him Revolver to start with this one. So, you know, it is obviously a song. She has listened to Revolver and that is the song that has stood out to her. She's not challenged by it. Because I mean, you know, Let's be clear. Like to, tomorrow never knows is is a mad song. Like now it's a mad <laughs> yeah. song. It's it sounds like the apocalypse. <laughs> like it, I I listened to it in twenty twenty three and it sounds like the apocalypse. Yeah. In nineteen sixty six, it must have sounded like even madder. Like what the hell are they doing? You know. And a couple of episodes earlier, there's a scene that is probably about six months earlier than this, where uh, Don and Megan are are in the car and he's whistling I want to hold your hand. That's right, yeah. And she says, "Oh, so I thought you didn't like that song." He said, "Oh, it's kind of grown on me, you know." And um but um as far as he's concerned, that's what the Beatles are, you know. Yeah. But it, yeah, for for her, it, that is the song that speaks to her. And she says, "Oh yeah, it, put this on." You know, so Don has just turned 40. Megan is I think in her early 20s. Mm-hmm. And so there's a generation gap between them. First off, he likes the fact that he has a, a young hot wife, you know. Yeah. He, he also likes the fact that she is a kind of gateway into the, the younger person's world, the, the you know, the counterculture. You know, as I said, so, I mean, earlier on when they're discussing, like, oh, who should we get for this song? He says, oh, I'll ask Megan. Yeah. She'll know. She always knows this stuff. But this sort of disconnects between the generations was sort of get is a sort of gap that he could fill through her. And it used to be just a sort of professional concern. It's something that a, a focus group could fix, you know. <laughs> But but now it's in his home, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah sure. you know. And now he's forty, and he's spending the nights at home uh, uh, on his own, and the, the, his young hot wife has gone out to do something interesting and creative, and he's just a sort of uh, just uh, just a normal guy at home on his own, you know. And and like, what the hell is this thing on the turntable she's put on?
1: And it, but it, it's also it's such a sharp contrast with where he wants things to be because the episode starts off with her working at his agency yeah. and not only is he seen looking lovingly at her whilst he's in that pitch meeting because he enjoys the fact that she is there and part of his life in the workplace but there's there's a whole uh, subplot around how they are pitching call whip mm. to uh, to, uh to call with other clients they're pitching their idea and it is the, the strength of the idea it's it's said in the episode is based on Don and Megan acting out this sort of advert between them yeah. and selling the chemistry of a married couple which they enjoy and everyone finds funny and and really you know sells the the, the actual creative creative story of the advert that they're trying to sell uh, later on after she's quit the agency Don is asked to recreate that with peggy and there's no chemistry she gets the lines wrong they get it all messed up because they're trying to copy uh what they had previously that sort of like you know like bottled lightning kind of thing so you you really get a glimpse of don is really happy with his life at the moment His everything is in its right place and then right at the end of the episode the ground is completely taken away from under him like he couldn't be more lost
2: yeah yeah him sitting and listening to Tomorrow never knows makes him feel irrelevant, yeah, and out of touch. You know, and it makes him feel like the world is moving on without me, and I'm being left behind. You know, and and actually, like you know, I've been I've been treading water this whole time. You know, because because I'm a creative guy, and I'm like, uh, and I'm revered for my creativity. But this this is creativity. I I didn't even imagine that music could ever sound like this. Yeah.
1: And it's worth pointing out as well that, just as an aside more than anything, that what we get in the Pete Campbell storyline in the same episode, there are moments where that mirrors Don's uh, feelings. So it's interesting that while Don has his reaction to hearing Tomorrow Never Knows for the first time, the the episode actually opens on Pete Campbell on the train. We don't actually see the book cover, but the book that he's reading is Thomas Pynchon's Crying of Lot 49, which is a very famous Abstract postmodernist novel, uh, and Pete is reading this with like a furrowed brow because he is reading what is a book that's been released the year before to great acclaim and not really understanding it. Yeah, and also as he embarks on this affair and becomes very quickly obsessed with with um, his friend's wife, he starts to feel very sort of insignificant and lost. And they even talk about. Photos that are released at the time from the satellite of Earth in space yeah. and he talks about how or, and they talk together about how, how small and insignificant that makes them feel yeah. from seeing the the Earth from far away and all of it lends this sort of confusion but also insecurity about what their place in the world is yeah. uh, which just sort of neatly parallels what Don is going through in that scene on a, on a sort of a more personal level. One of the things is it would be good to circle back on what you said earlier to show how brilliantly layered the writing in Mad Men is. Is that you were saying that Don is at a point in his professional uh, role where he feels like he's basically creating facsimiles of what already exists rather than inventing his own ideas. And that idea, I think, permeates throughout the episode. This idea of there being an imitation or a replica that doesn't quite live up to the original. Mm. For example, him and Peggy trying to recreate the skit that uh, him and Megan do so successfully first time around. Yep. The very fact that the thing that they are trying to sell an idea for at that time is Cool Whip, which is the you know, the imitation of whipped cream yeah, at yeah. the time. You You can also include within that the idea of megan trying to live up to don's professional career by working in the agency in the first place and she's sort of lying to herself and ultimately is found out to be lying to don about where her passions really lie that moment where she tells him that she doesn't want to work at the agency anymore uh, and he doesn't understand like he's he's you know he he responds by saying we can get you another job at another agency and he tries to reassure and says but you're really good at this Mm -hmm. and he doesn't understand that she's actually trying to say it's not what I want to do. And then when she yeah. does get through to him, he's like visibly crushed because he doesn't get why why somebody else wouldn't want the, the same passion that he
2: has. Yeah, because this isn't creativity as far as she's concerned. Yeah. At least it, it's, not, it's not a sufficient outlet for her creativity. Whereas as far as he's concerned, that's all, all he wants. But really, like, he, he has taken his creativity and he's used it to to sell things for corporations you know and uh, and she's not she's not framing it this way although like her father who we've seen in a previous episode is is a communist and has sort of oh that's right a, a sort of communist intellectual uh, or a marxist at least um who who has sort of uh, taught his daughter certain ideas and is quite disappointed with her for having a a, a commercial job. Yeah, so, you know, there's a hypocrisy to him because he obviously enjoys the trappings of it of the nice apartment she lives in and so forth. But anyway, uh, she's not necessarily framing her thoughts that way, but she is unsatisfied by this uh, this outlet for her creativity that is essentially just selling things and you know acting, which uh, of course another form of imitation. Um, hmm. But but acting is a, a way. For her to sort of truly express her creativity, you know, um, in, a, in a sort of more more pure form, I suppose.
1: Exactly. And, and, and uh, the, the reason it's worth talking about this is because the fact that that can be explored so thoroughly in the episode when it's not the point of the episode. Yeah. It kind of circles back to what we were saying at the start of this about how, how the show works. Yeah. Uh, at an episodic level, like there are these themes that connect these things together, but it's, it's it's not on the surface at all. You really have to dig into it. The other one that I really wanted to, to talk through and point out is th- the episode itself is really concerned with death, uh, death and rebirth. Yeah. And the significance of this is kind of highlighted by the fact that it's called Lady Lazarus, which is a, a very famous, probably her most famous, Sylvia Plath poem. So Sylvia Plath... She died in 1963 and she killed herself in that year. The poem Lady Lazarus was first published two years later posthumously, but the US edition of that collection of poems, which is called Ariel, wasn't published until 1966. So the timeline tracks with when this episode takes place. Right. Uh, so the, the poem itself is about her own suicide attempts. So she talks about the three times that she's nearly died in her life and going through the process of of dying or almost dying and then coming out the other side and that actually being how she says in the poem more of a challenge to sort of come back to life and face everyone Mm. again having well in the last two occasions having tried to kill herself
0: i have done it again one year in every 10 i manage it a sort of walking miracle my skin bright as a nazi lampshade. My right foot a paperweight, My
1: face a featureless, fine Jew linen. Peel off the napkin, O my enemy. Do I terrify? Yes, yes, Herr Professor, it is I. Can you deny the nose, the eye pits, The full set of teeth? The sour breath will vanish in a day. Soon, soon the flesh the grave cave ate Will be at home on me, and I a smiling woman. I'm only 30, and like the cat, I have nine times to die. This is number three. So there is, there's this strong subject matter in the poem, which is about her suicide attempts, her trying to die. Lady Lazarus, obviously Lazarus is a reference to the biblical character that Jesus brings back to life. And then throughout the episode, there were just loads of references to death. I think peppered throughout. You have Pete's Uh, ruse to get close to his friend's wife is talking to him about potentially buying life insurance from him Mm. Um, he talks about his current life insurance policy and even says something like after two years i think it even covers suicide yes as a throwaway thing (laughs) also like interesting enough the very last shot we, we see of megan in the episode is actually her lying down pretending to be dead, essentially, uh, in her acting class class. as Tomorrow Never Knows plays. And obviously, most importantly, Tomorrow Never Knows is about death.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, the lyrics, you know, so John was sort of inspired by the Tibetan Book of the Dead uh, to write those lyrics, you know. Um, Yeah. And I I think, you know, there's the bit where when Megan leaves the office for the last time, Don sort of walks her to the elevator. She gets in the elevator on her own and then he hits the button to get the next elevator, the next one along. The elevator doors open, but there's no elevator there. He finds himself looking down into like an empty lift shaft, mm. staring into the abyss. You know, staring into the, the void. You know, uh, the void. Of course, uh, being the original working title for Tomorrow Never Knows. It's what uh, it's uh, one of those things where you know, lay down all thoughts, surrender to the void. John yeah. wanted that for the title, the void. But I think he thought it was a bit too heavy. And then when Ringo came up with Tomorrow Never Knows is one of his famous malapropisms. He thought yeah, it yeah. was a less heavy title in general.
1: Now, Ringo, I hear you were manhandled at the embassy ball. Is this right? Not really. Someone just cut a bit of my hair. You see? Let's have a look. You seem to have got plenty Can
2: you left. you see the difference? That's <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> longer want. this side. <laughs> what happened
1: exactly? I don't know. I was just talking, having an interview, just like I am now. <laughs> I was talking away and then, t- <laughs> there it goes. And I looked around, there's about 400 people just, Smiling, you see. we had that in the other program. <laughs> you know, so you can't blame. You know, what can you say? What can you say? Oh, yeah, Tomorrow okay. never knows. And I think um, uh, again, the the subject of the song talks about death as a cyclical thing. Yeah. So it is not dying and of the beginning and and I think this is again reflected. It's not just the, the episode isn't just about death, but you know, rebirth in the sense of Megan. Quitting her job and course correcting her life and her sort of professional goals. Yeah. Also, really interesting as well. Just one last sort of Sylvia Plath connection. Uh, Pete obviously suddenly becomes very obsessed with Beth. Yeah. And Sylvia Plath in her life was obviously treated multiple times for her depression with electric shock therapy. And right. obviously, Beth then goes on to receive the same treatments. That then sort of renders her Yeah, of course. Uh not quite sort of being with it and remembering like who Pete is and yeah, being confused about those things and yeah, stuff. I mean, yeah. So there's sort of a neat sort of through line there with Plath but you know, more importantly, I guess her life and the fact that the the poem was published in the same year, uh and all of those sort of same thoughts and ideas are sort of explored in this episode is quite a a neat way to encapsulate that in the in the episode title.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They should, they should have given her a cameo.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> we should quickly cover off as well all of the other times Beatles are referenced in Mad Men. I mean, considering they are the most culturally important uh, thing happening in the 60s at any given time, Yeah. they're not really mentioned much. Yeah. But there are a few other mentions. So in the the very first time that we hear the Beatles mentioned in Mad Men is in the second episode of season four where Don gets his secretary to buy some Beatles 45s for Sally, his daughter. And it's kind of like a throwaway thing, right?
2: Oh, I remember. I think he said, it, it, doesn't he say sort of like buy these Christmas presents for people on my yep. behalf and just for Sally, yeah, get some Beatles 45s. like Like it's like some shoes, yes, or, exactly. Or Some candy or, or some dolls like that. or something like. You know, it's just right, like right, it doesn't right.
1: even matter which ones. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just like that's what
2: she'll want. She's... Yeah, like pre- presumably there are new Beatles forty five. <laughs> yes, she doesn't have because there are new yeah. ones every two or three months. Yeah, yeah. So just get those. Yeah, fine. That's fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, the other um, probably significant one is there is a subplot in the tenth episode of season four uh, where Don has managed to wrangle. Getting tickets to see the Beatles at Shea Stadium oh, yeah. to take Sally uh, yeah. there, and uh, she like she screams down the phone at him, right? Because she's so excited about <laughs> yes, going. Yes, so it yes, was yes. very like a nice sort of neat uh, view of sort of Beatlemania uh, from a girl of her age p- perspective. I have
0: a big surprise for you. Can you keep a secret? Do you think your friends are going to be jealous when they find out you're going to see the Beatles on Sunday at Shea Stadium? What? You heard me. Hello? Sally? What's going on? I'm going to need her Sunday. We're going to see the Beatles. Oh,
2: my goodness. Sally, say thank you. Thank you, Daddy. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: You can't be mad at me if I wear earplugs.
1: I won't. I promise.
2: We should mention as well, actually, in in this... In this season, in in a way that's sort of adjacent, is that like Don is backstage at a Rolling Stones concert, so he's sort of interacting. So basically, he's gone along because someone has said, um, "Oh, we want to get the Beatles for this advert," and someone says, "Oh, you can't get the Beatles. They either they don't do it because the Beatles didn't do adverts, by the way, like at, at this point, and uh, now they do. They do like Airbnb or or anyone these days." Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. It. Yellow
1: submarine Airbnb. That was a
2: that was a weird one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he's gone along, he and uh, Harry Crane have gone along to sort of try and meet the Rolling Stones, or to meet Alan Klein, I think, actually, and try and persuade the Rolling Stones to be in this advert or to give their music for this advert. And so they're backstage at this concert. There's a couple of teenage girls who are kind of hanging out, trying to meet the Stones. And they and, and like, the conversation they have is quite instructive, I think, about the disconnect between generations. <laughs> So what do you
0: like so much about the Rolling Stones?
1: Why don't you get me backstage and you'll see.
0: What do you feel
2: when you hear them?
0: Brian Jones. He's a troubadour.
1: So you feel romantic?
0: God, you're like a psychiatrist. So what do you think? They're gonna show? Stop looking at your watch, they're gonna come when they come. They're gonna come right down that hallway and I'm gonna jump on Brian like Jack Ruby.
1: What do you expect to happen?
2: I'll get into that dressing room and I'm gonna stare at him while he tunes his guitar. He'll see me from across the room. I'm Lady Jane, he'll know that. Then what are you gonna do? I don't know,
0: whatever he wants.
2: And what do you think he wants?
0: None of you want any of us to have a good time just because
2: you never did. No, we're worried about you. This is one of the things about the fact that Don doesn't really know how to feel, and he and he sort of and he doesn't understand all this new stuff. And he says to this teenage girl, "What do you feel when you hear the Stones?" You know. L- later on, I think the girl says to him something like. Oh, your generation or whatever. She says, you know, you you older people like you just don't want us to have any fun. And he says, no, we're worried about you, you know. Mm -hmm. And he seems quite sincere, you know. You know, there does seem to be a thing where they feel quite protective about this younger generation who they feel are just kind of like spinning out of control Mm. because no one's seen young people behave this way. You know, I mean, I mean, bear in mind that all this there was a reason why when the Beatles played live and the whole town went mad. Why that was quite scary for people. Yeah, no sure. one had seen that stuff before. Mass hysteria. Yeah, it's yeah. Pro- properly, you know, in, in a way that it felt impossible to control. You know, you, you can understand why people were concerned about it. You know. Yeah, yeah, of
1: course. And and talking about the screaming, I did quite like it. At the the end of the Shea Stadium episode, over the credits, there's an instrumental version they play of "Do You Want to Know a Secret." Right, right. Which is particularly good because in that episode, it's there's a lot of, you know, the, the, the one of the main themes of that episode is all about the characters keeping secrets. It's the one where FBI agents turn up at Betty's house to talk to her about Don. And it's to do with like an NDA clearance of a client that they're working with. Yeah. And he becomes worried that she's going to expose or his life lie is going to be exposed about him taking uh, the Don Draper name. Yeah. Um, it's the one where Joan is pregnant with Roger's child yep. and gets an abortion, but doesn't and keeps that a secret okay. from him. Yeah. yeah and it, there's, there's a, there's a few instances of episodes, So it's quite a nice sort of neat uh, song to end on that sort of encapsulates that as well. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah.
1: And, and just uh, separate to that as well. There, there's a couple of times where not quite Beatles, but Beatles adjacent, a couple of Beach Boys uh, references as well. in there, there's, early on episode, we hear catch a wave in season four in the fifth season episode where Roger takes LSD. Mm. Um, that scene has, I just wasn't made for these times yes. playing. And yeah, so. they,
2: they use that really well. But, but uh, by the way, I mean, so w- when Roger takes LSD, I always thought that the way that any character, it, like in any film or TV show, when they have taken LSD, the way that that is depicted is always like, oh, everything starts swirling and all the yeah, colours yeah. change and all that kind of stuff. Roger's LSD trip is not like that at all. It is just that weird things happen. Yeah. Like he he lights a cigarette and just inhales the entire thing at once yes. with a sort of... Like a sort of... <laughs> like, uh, a like, like a trombone. Like a trombone sound. It's really weird. Yeah. And he takes the lid off a bottle of booze and it starts playing like the 1812 Overture or something That's like that. That's right, puts yeah. It back. So that, there's all these little sort of auditory hallucinations and things like that. But it's played quite straight in a funny way, you know, and, and not in a way of just like, oh, wow, man. And like, you know, and he just hears sitars and all this kind yes. of stuff. you know.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, it's brilliant. very, And it also played for laughs as well because it yeah. is just hilarious to watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you have any other Beatles-related Mad Men connections?
2: Yeah, I think so. The, the, there's the British character uh, Lane Price – uh who's who's one of the partners at at the ad agency he kind of he comes into it uh slightly later on maybe in from about season 3 or so i think so he he's played by jared harris uh who of course plays john lennon in two of us yeah um, first which, episode our first episode uh but uh, jared harris is uh, i think he's a really interesting actor and also the fact that he he's in this sort of prestige american tv show mm. uh and he's playing a character who's very kind of He's very straight laced. But then again, uh, like any British person is kind of straight laced in this context, you know, and he's quite and, and the way he speaks is quite posh. But I remember at the time reading an interview that he did where he because like there's some, something that Lane says about when he, he's sort of talking to another English person and says, like, you know, the thing I like about Manhattan is that no one ever asked me where I went to school. Um, you <laughs> yeah. know, because I think it, he it feels some relief at sort of getting away from the British class system. Yeah, um, Yeah, Jared Harris said in an interview that the way he found the character, was he sort of came up with a backstory whereby Lane had grown up kind of lower middle class in sort of Liverpool or Manchester and had then gone to a private school and kind of had the accent drummed out of him. Right. And so he kind of had not a toughness necessarily, but uh, but the fact that he was always trying to a- appear more upper class than he was, you know, mm-hmm. just in order to fit in, you know. I always thought that was a really clever character detail. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. And, uh, yeah, and I think it um, aligns the character ever more slightly with John Lennon. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah it does, it's yeah. true. So there's another connection, which is just a coincidence, which is in, uh, in an earlier uh, season... Pete Campbell's father is killed in a plane crash, and it was a real life plane crash. It was Flight One American Airlines, uh, which uh, took off on the first of March, nineteen sixty-two, and crashed pretty much immediately. And in real life, Linda McCartney's mother was on that plane, and uh, and she died in that plane crash. Wow. So yeah, so it's uh, actually if you it, it, if you kind of look up that plane crash, there are a few kind of significant people who, who were on that plane you know it's um so i think it's kind of what they were trying to do Mad Men is kind of a to sort of bring in one of these sort of high profile events from the 60s but in a way that it actually affects the characters directly and b kind of make the point that pete campbell's dad who was a sort of rich uh, rich manhattan yeah. uh big shot make the point that it it was kind of people like that of that kind of social strata who were killed in that plane crash
1: yeah well so I think you know hopefully through talking a little bit about how we feel that the episodes in Mad Men work from a Scripts perspective and uh, exploration of character and looking at the sort of the cultural events that are explored in that show at the time and, and how they coincide with the release of this particular song hopefully that does enough of a job to explain why tomorrow never knows is such a perfect fit for this particular episode and what is happening in don's life at this particular time hopefully we've done that job But also, hopefully, it then justifies the actual price tag of using the song in the episode. Because one thing we haven't (laughs) mentioned is that Matthew Weiner was so adamant at getting this song to fully represent uh, this moment in the episode that he ended up paying $250,000 out of the show's budget to use it, which is just astonishing.
2: Yeah, and had to personally persuade Paul McCartney to let him use it. Yeah,
1: and I think, I, I don't know if there's any sort of real clarity on how this worked, but I from what I understand, the episode and the writing of the episode had to be shaped and tooled around the use of the song. So there's talk of it being sort of almost a collaborative effort. I, I get the impression that that Matthew Weiner would would have to really sell the significance of this song in particular and therefore write the episodes in such a way that it was really clear to the, the stakeholders that he had to persuade exactly why this song was the only song that would work.
2: Yeah, I think also that he, I, I think I remember him saying when he was interviewed about this that Mad Men was always going to have to feature a Beatles song because okay. it's because it's kind of stupid that you never hear the Beatles. In the in, yeah, in the, in, in the whole thing, which is which is true, which is true. You know, I think about
1: that about most shows. To be fair, though, yeah, yeah <laughs> just because true. they're so prevalent in my life, it's like just be watching, right? Sure, like well, Saved by the Bell, for example. Right, like, right. why aren't the Beatles playing in this?
2: Yeah, why are they really never on in in the Queen Vic in East No, yeah. exactly. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, we would love to hear uh, what you think. Have you watched Mad Men? Have you watched this particular episode? What do you think about uh, the use of this song? in this episode and do you agree with us about its significance it's not even agreeing with us it's agreeing with Matthew Weiner. he's the one who forked out for it (laughs) Um, we would love to hear from you please get in touch with us you can reach us on all the usual social media platforms we are at Beatles Films Pod Uh, you can also leave us a review or a 5 star rating on your podcast listening platform of choice Uh, otherwise we'll see you again next week for another episode and until then bye 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 bye